0: While they're making their way out, let me invite you to take out your copy of God's Word or maybe turn on your device and look with me at 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. We're making our way through this letter of John to the church and we find ourselves in the middle of the very last chapter. If you're looking for it in your Bible, if you open your Bible in the middle and kind of go to the right, it's almost all the way near the end, almost all the way near to the end. Now, one of the phrases that probably stands out to us in our culture is the phrase, all rise. When you hear that phrase, you immediately think about a court in session. You think about a judge who's sitting behind a desk with a gavel. You think about a jury that's been placed in a box. You think about lawyers who are going to present their case, and then a decision must be made. In fact, you may even remember in the days of old where they would bellow out, hear ye, hear ye, court is in session, right? Some of you probably heard that more than you should before you got saved, right? That's the idea. But the idea is, is that we, we have a, a picture of a courtroom. Well, that's exactly the, the kind of framing in our mind we should have in our text today. In First John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, John will essentially take us to court. He will bring us into the courtroom and lay out for us the evidence of Christ. In fact, if you read these seven verses, you will find that over eight times in seven verses, he will use the phrase testify or testimony. He's using court language. He's presenting to us a case. Now the question is, what is the case And what decision must be made? What will be the verdict of the decision? Well, the case is simply this. For five chapters, John has been reminding the church that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who came into the world in real flesh, in real blood, died a real death, and rose from the grave. And then he will say to us that the only way to have eternal life is to come to the belief in Jesus, to come to The Messiah. So for five chapters, he's been arguing that Jesus is God in the flesh. And that when we find him, when we believe in him, we will be transformed by the Spirit. We will be knitted into the family of love, is what he would refer to. And we will have eternal life. And so he's been making that case. But there's one problem. There's one issue with John's argument so far. And John knows it because he is led by the Spirit to write these words. John has this one objection still standing out there. John, we've heard your story of Jesus. We've heard you tell us he's the Messiah. We've heard you tell us he's the Savior. Here's the question. Why should we believe you? Why should we believe this testimony? Why should we take anything you say to be true about Jesus? Why is it necessary to to affirm your telling of the story? And so what John will do to answer this objection is he will take us to court. And he will say, let me tell you about the witnesses I will call to the jury stand, or to the witness stand, excuse me. Let me tell you about the the ones who proclaim, not just that it's John's message, but this is the very message of God. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to believe it simply because man has said it. We can believe it because God has said it. God has declared, this is the story of salvation in my son. And so in the text today, John will ask us. To examine the evidence. And then hear me now, don't miss this. He will demand a response. Brothers and sisters, when the gospel is presented to us, we always make a decision. We will either choose to believe. We will either choose to follow Christ. We will choose to be conformed even more to the image of the Son, our Savior. Or we will choose with hard hearts and deaf ears to turn and walk the way. But listen to me now, there is no neutral in the presentation of the gospel. It is for or against. It is with or without. And so John will demand a response. Join me in your copy of God's Word, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6. 1 John 5, starting in verse 6. Allow me to read it to us together. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Verse 9. If I receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he was born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is his son. Whoever has the son has life. Hear this now. And whoever does not have the son, the son of God does not have life. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for the truth of John's words, that it is true, it is pure, it is right. We thank you that this word is not from man, but this is your word. This is the infallible, perfect, sufficient Word of God that we are reading and hearing today. And we thank you that it is living and active. That while we will read about John and his testimony some 2,000 years ago, we know that it is present and working now. And so, Lord, I pray over the next few moments you would help us. You would help us try, Father, in, 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 with, our, with our listening ears and our attentive minds, to sit in the jury box, to weigh the evidence, to see the story unfold, But Father, I pray more than anything that the power of the Spirit would move upon us because we know even as we think about judging you or weighing the evidence, that is fallacy. For man does not judge you. We do not weigh you. You are God over all things. And so help us to see that again today. Press it in our hearts, Lord. Conform us now to the image of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just give you a little bit of the context as we've been walking through this book. John is the elder apostle. In fact, most of the apostles are probably deceased by now. He's one of the last living eyewitnesses to the risen Savior, Jesus himself. And he began to preach the gospel. He began to plant the churches with Paul and Peter and and Matthew and James and Mark and Barnabas. And they go out sharing the good news. And and now generations have come and gone. And now we're into the second or third generation of the church. And, And as you get further and further from the source, you know it becomes harder and harder to believe. And and then there's also enough time for wolves and false teachers to work their way in and and twist the story. And we know this was going to happen because Jesus warned us of this, that they were going to come and try to pull attention away from the Messiah. And so this is exactly what's happened. False teachers have come into the church and they began to teach. And, And really and truly the most central false doctrine that they were teaching that John is combating is that Jesus was not really God in the flesh. In fact, this view would give birth to what is known as Gnosticism, but it's the idea that Jesus was a a man, a special man, a prophet, and at his baptism, the Spirit of God fell on him and made him special. And then before his cross death, the Spirit of God left him and he went back to being a man. Now, brothers and sisters, in a moment, we'll see how this is just false and not worth our time, but we understand that John is combating that. And so he's arguing about the true gospel, and he's writing to a church. But but here's the part I want you to hear, because, because I love this part. In all throughout this letter, John is writing to a church that let false teachers come in and pull them from the gospel, and then they left the false teachers, and so the church is fractured and harmed and beat up. They've been bitten by the wolves. But I love it, because John writes all through this letter, My little children, beloved He writes to them not to scold them, not to stone them, not to to get angry with them. He writes to them with a heart of a loving pastor that says, listen, I know you've been hurt. I know you've been broke down. I know faith hadn't added up the way you thought it would. I know your understanding of God's plan hadn't unfolded the way you pictured it. But I want you to hear something. God loves you. He's still in control. He's still watching over you. And you've not done anything that's outside of his grace and his mercy. And he gathers the church back up to rally them together. And so that's where we find ourselves in the text this morning. He's reminding them why it's important for us to believe in Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want you to keep that mindset of the court in your mind. And I want to call to the stand a couple of things we would see in court. First, I want you to see the calling of the witnesses. John calls some witnesses to the stand. He, he begins to make his argument by calling these witnesses. In fact, the, the first witness that he will call is a witness that we would put together, and he says, the water and the blood. Look at verse 6 with me. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, I understand that as we read that, it can be certainly confusing. Let us state a couple of things up front. One, John's audience would have been crystal clear about what he's writing. He would have written in a way that they understand what this water-blood argument is. And there are many theologians that have debated what does John mean by water and blood. But the most obvious application and the most trusted throughout church history is simply this. What John is doing is he's calling to the stand the witness of Jesus' baptism and his death. He's saying if you want to know if Jesus really is God in the flesh, really is the Messiah, then we will look at the two terminal points of his earthly ministry. We will look at the beginning, his baptism, and we will look at what is known as the end, his death, the culmination of him coming, this salvation, right? Now, let me take a caveat there and let's make sure we understand the eternal God. Death did not end Jesus, right? He's forever living, all right? So I don't want you to leave here and put that on Facebook that the pastor said death ended Jesus, all right? But the idea is, is that those mark his earthly resume. If you were to look at Jesus' resume, his public ministry, it begins with baptism and it culminates with death. Now, why does John call these two witnesses? Why is the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus so important for us to believe the message Christ. Well, I believe that it's for two reasons. The first reason is simply this: that the baptism and the death of Jesus show us he is fully God. They reveal to us that he is actually God in the flesh, that he is truly God, fully formed in. Now, how do we know this? Well, if you were to look in the gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism, you will find it in the early parts of the gospels, and you will find Jesus going into the baptismal water, and John is there to baptize him. Not the John who wrote the letter, but the other John, who's there to baptize him. And as he's being baptized and coming up out of the water, you hear the voice of God from heaven say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so we find this miraculous moment in the baptism we find this moment where the voice of heaven gives affirmation that this is as John 3 would tell us the only begotten son the one who has come this is the savior so when John says the baptism declares Jesus as the savior he is reminding us of the miraculous moment where Jesus stepped into public life and began to walk as one who is from God and just think about it Baptism in our own life is a declaration of repentance, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But it is also the start of our public Christian life, is it not? When we are baptized, we are declaring to the church, we're with Jesus and Jesus is with us. We want to follow him and obey him and be on his team. Uh, oftentimes when I describe baptism to children, I refer to sports teams. I will ask a child, how, how can you tell the difference between the two teams on the field? And they will say always, inevitably, the jerseys. You can tell the two teams by the jerseys. Well, for us, baptism is a declaration of putting on the jersey of Christ. We are with Christ but think about it from Jesus's perspective his baptism was declaring I am now going to reveal to you the reason why I come and his life will be pursuit of obeying the father in heaven and he will not now here's the difference between our baptism and his you were baptized I would baptize and sin was still around the corner Sin was still pulling us entangling us and breaking us. If we were so inclined, we might think we ought to be baptized every other day and twice on Saturday, right? Just to remind ourselves of the gospel. But, but Jesus was never a sinner. And so the baptism declares this is the Savior who has come. But look with me at the text. Because we need to understand the argument that John is making. He says in verse 6, Jesus Christ came not by water only, but by water and the blood. Now why do you think he phrases it that way? Well, those who would believe Jesus was a good messiah, a good prophet, a good teacher, would have no problem affirming that Jesus was special at his baptism. In fact, they would say that's when the Christ, the spirit of God fell on him, which is heresy by the way, but but they would say there's no problem there. What they would definitely argue with John about is that it was not God in the flesh who died on the cross. It was not the Savior of the world who died on the cross, that that God himself would not dare be punished unto blood. And so when Jesus went to the cross, the argument of those who were twisting the gospel in the day of John, the argument was simply this. Jesus, the Christ, the Spirit of the Savior, left him, and now just the earthly Jesus, the man Jesus, died on the cross. So now look at the phrase. Not only by water, but by blood. You know what John is saying? John is saying you can't have one without the other. You cannot have Jesus, who is the miraculous Savior, being baptized in which Jesus hears from heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and then somehow get to the cross and say, well, he wasn't really God in the flesh. You can't have one without the other. And so he's making the argument that death on the cross was God in the flesh. He is arguing now that the blood testifies to Jesus. He's called this witness, water and blood to the stand. And he says, this is God in the flesh. Now, why does it have to be God in the flesh? Let us think for just a moment about the New Testament doctrine of atonement. Brothers and sisters, if it is not God in the flesh who died on the cross, then we have no hope. We have no forgiveness of our sin because good men could not rescue sinners. We've had good men. We had Father Abraham and Moses and David. We had Joshua and Isaiah. We had the faithful prophets. We had Jonah who went to preach in the wayward country. We've had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've had Paul and Peter. We've had Billy Graham. We've had good men. But good men could not form the chasm that lay between us and God. Good men could not rescue us from our sin. Brothers and sisters, we don't need a good man to die for us. We need God in the flesh. And John says, "John says, let me show you my first witness. It is God. Think about that. Think about the blood that poured down from his head and through his back. Think about the spear that was jammed into his side. Do you realize that that's the very drops of the blood of the divine? That the very treasure of heaven, the blood of God itself, poured down that tree for you and for me. This is God in the flesh. And how do we know? We know because darkness fell and cries were made and earthquakes shook and dead rose from the grave and curtains ripped. Read the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection and you will know it was only God's hand that was in the middle of that. And here's the beautiful thought of the atonement. Jesus did not go there because we deserved it. Jesus did not go there because we earned it. Jesus did not go there because somehow Roman soldiers overpowered him. He was a willing sacrifice who laid down his life for us. God in the flesh. The Apostle Paul would write it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. He would say these words, "...for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace..." by the blood of the cross John himself would write in John the gospel chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god John 14. and the word became flesh and dwelt among us this is god in the flesh and the baptism and the crucifixion declare it this is god now what is the application listen now don't miss this here's the application The application is this, brothers and sisters, when you find yourself sick with sin and full of shame and you think to yourself, God cannot rescue you, just remember this, it was God who died for you. Your sin is not too far, your shame is not too deep, your brokenness is not too hard for him. Why? Because it was not a man that died for you, it was God who died for you. And whatever you've done, wherever you've gone, whatever you're dealing with, God is big enough, strong enough, and wonderful enough to rescue from where you are. Because it is God who died for you. But the second reason why I think he calls the blood and the water to the witness stand is not only to show us that God, that Jesus is fully God, but it's to show us that Jesus is fully man. Let us read the text again just to remind ourselves what we're talking about. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. I think that he's showing us that not only is Uh, Jesus fully God, I think he's showing us that Jesus is fully man. What do I mean by that? Because I, I would say that theologians and Bible scholars and people who've read the Gospels, you yourself who have read the Gospels, you might ask yourself, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, we know what baptism is. Baptism is the confession of our sin that, that Jesus has saved us and it is the display of repentance. We're baptized to tell the world, to tell the church we needed saving. We came to Jesus, Jesus saved us, and baptism is the public profession, the declaration, the identifying with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. We needed to be saved, and we needed baptism to show the world that we've been saved. But Jesus didn't need saving, he didn't need repenting, and he certainly didn't need need baptism so why in the world would he climb into that river now i want you to see this because it's wonderful news brothers and sisters i would tell you that jesus did not need to climb into that river no more than he needed to climb on that cross but he did both of those in order to enter into this world with us to come to us do you see it He climbed into that baptismal pool so that he could say to you, brother, to you, sister, I'm coming to the battlefield to fight for you and with you. I am one of you. I want to rescue you. And he climbed up on that tree and died a death. We should have died and bore the uh, wrath that we should have bore as a sinner, one whose curse was laid on him. Why? Because he's a God who enters into our world. He's a God who rescues us. He's a God who changes everything. And you know why that's good? It's good because just like He is fully God and we can take all of our sin and shame and know He's strong enough to deal with it, it's also good to know that in all of my sin and shame and brokenness, He understands. He knows. It is good that in the quiet of my home, in the darkness of my knees, on my bed pillow, and I'm praying to the Lord and I'm laying out my pain and my struggle. I'm not praying to a divine deity that does not care, that does not know, it is not in tune. I am praying to God in the flesh who walked and talked and knew, tempted in every way, tried. He was at the funeral of loved ones. He was there with the sickness of the masses. He was there in the brokenness of the worship of the false teachers. He walked it. He smelled it. He talked it. He ate. He slept. He cried. This is our Jesus, God in the flesh, and He came to save us. The writer of Hebrews would put it this way in Hebrews chapter four, verse twelve. He would say simply these words: "For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. He's not. He's not unable to sympathize. What does he say? But one who, in every respect, was tempted as yet we are without sin. Now that without sin part—that's big." That's that whole fully God part laid back in there to remind us that while he knows us and he understands and we can cry out to him and we can beg him and we can plead with him and we can wrestle and we can come to him. We can always be reminded that while he fully understands, he's also fully God who will defeat every struggle we have. It is good for us to know. So what does John do? He calls this first witness and he said, let me lay before you the resume of Jesus. Let me lay before you the baptism and the blood and let me remind you, this is him, God in the flesh. And so what do the water and the blood testify? They testify simply this. Jesus was not a good philosopher. He was not a moral revolutionist. He was not just a good teacher and an apostle. He was God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, the God man who came to rescue us. John says, you don't have to believe me. Believe the baptism and the cross. Let me show you a second witness that he calls to the stand. Look with me at the text in verse uh, 8. Excuse me, verse 6. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, verse 8, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three Agree. Now, I, I love the way that he describes this because I got to be honest with you. Jesus died some 2000 years ago. His baptism was some 2000 years and 33 uh, years on top of that ago, right? Before his death. He, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. And so here's what John does. John says, I've told you about the blood and the water, which are past tense events. Those happened a long time before you and for me. Now, some of you are closer to that than me. I understand that. I was humor, by the way. I'm just picking. But the idea is, is that that was a long time ago. So, so how can it be trusted? How can we know? Well, notice what he does. Look, look, look with me at the way he uses the verb tense. And the spirit is the one who testifies. That's now. That's present. So so you know what John is doing? John not only calls the past act of water and blood to the stand, but now he calls the present working of the Spirit to the stand. And he says this. He says, you know it's true because the Spirit takes the past act and testifies to it in the present day. And so I can have confidence that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, God in the flesh, came to rescue me, not just because events happened in the past, but because those events are being constantly testified to to the Spirit that is eternal. And so the Spirit is telling me, is informing me, is enlightening me of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then Paul would tell us that the scales would fall off our eyes and we would see Jesus. You know why you believe the story of Jesus? It's not because you or I are super intelligent. It's not because we somehow did a lot of law work and discovered all the details and found all the things. You know why we believe the story of Jesus? One, it's because we were told the story. You cannot believe it unless you've heard it. We were told the story. But the main reason why you believe the story of Jesus, why Jesus has changed you, is because the Spirit has worked in your heart to open your eyes that you would see what the world would call foolish and we would call it wonderful. It is the spirit that testifies to the cross, to Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself promising the spirit in John 15 writes these words. He says in John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, that's the spirit whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. Now we could take a caveat here and spend a whole sermon on the role of the Holy Spirit. But the central role of the Holy Spirit is to show us the beauty of Christ, to show us the glory of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, to reveal to us our Savior in Christ. So John says, let me tell you about a couple of witnesses so you don't have to take my word for it. Let me tell you about the baptism and the cross. Let me tell you about the work of Jesus in his life. But let me also tell you now that the pricking of your heart, the stirring of your spirit, that's now. That's the Holy Spirit who's working In us, Pastor James Merritt, who pastors a church over in Georgia, writes it this way. He says, just as an arrow of a compass always points towards north, the Spirit of God always points to Jesus. When you walk with the Spirit, He's going to reveal Jesus. If you're walking with the Spirit, if you're communing with the Lord, if you're studying His Word, and you find yourself going opposite the way of Jesus, that's not the Spirit of God that's leading you. The Spirit of God's role is to always testify and point us to Jesus. And I want to show you something interesting. Look at verse 7 and 8. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the Water, and the Blood. And these three agree. Now, we probably don't quite understand this, but this is Jewish law brought to the New Testament. If you were to look in the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find that when the nation of Israel was set up as a community, they had laws to govern not only their religion, but also their society. They had to have rules, just like we have speed limits and stop signs, and most of us try to follow those, right? They have rules, and one of the rules they had in their court system was that you had to have two or three witnesses before you could find someone guilty or innocent. In fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul would say, I'm coming to you to deal with the issue, and you better have, I'm paraphrasing, two or three witnesses. So think about what John is doing. He's arguing to people, and he's saying, listen, you might take my word for it, but I'm just one witness. Let me give you some corroborating evidence. There's the blood, there's the water, there's the spirit. I got three witnesses declaring to you Jesus is the Savior. And they agree. Their testimony is in tune. They are in harmony declaring this message. So he calls a witness. Now you would think he would rest his case, right? Don't y'all remember Law and Order where you watch the episodes? It's been on for 400 years, the TV show. And you remember they say, I rest my case, I've presented all my evidence. I've done all I need to do. You would think he would rest his case. But John holds one more card up his sleeve. One more, if you will, trump card to say, just just in case you're still waffling on believing, let me show you one more final witness. And brothers and sisters, he calls God the Father himself to the witness stand. Look with me at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Now, the third witness is now God. And John says, you've heard about the spirit. You've heard about the blood. You've heard about the water. And I want to tell you where all three of those witnesses get their origin from the father. The Father is the one who's declaring this is right. The Father is the one who at the baptism said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father is the one that Jesus at the cross would say, into your hands I commend my spirit. The Father is the one who's over these things. The Father is the one who sent the helper to us. The Father, the God over all creation is behind all of this. And John says, believe me now, Watch this. Don't miss this. You can believe in Jesus because you saw his baptism. You saw his death. You know the Spirit is testifying to it. But you can believe it because it is God himself who started this plan. It is God himself who did this. Can I tell you one of the reasons why Christianity is so attractive? It is not made up by men. Brothers and sisters, if we made up a religion, we would butcher it every direction possible. We do a pretty good job messing up Christianity along the way. But it is from God. It is straight from the lips of heaven. He says, God has ordained this, that it is from him. And notice he uses a a less than, greater than argument, kind of an if then. He says, if you'll receive the testimony of men, if in your courts you'll let a witness stand up and and cast guilt or, or innocence on a person, how much more should you hear the testimony of God? How much more should you listen to the Father in heaven who declares, this is Jesus, my son, and whom I love? God is the one who sent this, and this is the beauty of the text. Jesus' coming is God's plan. Can I just give you one thought of application, and we'll move to the closing part of John's argument, and that's simply this. Whenever you find yourself struggling with with feeling the love of God, and let us be reminded that our feelings are wrecked by sin, but whenever you find yourself struggling to find God, feel God, walk with God, maybe God doesn't care about you or he's not hearing you or, or life seems very hard at the moment and, and you find yourself wondering, what are you? where are you, God? What are you doing? Can, can I just remind you of something? God sent his son to die for you. And he died a death you should have died feeling the wrath of God on your sins buried in your tomb and rose from a grave that you could not raise from in your own power. And that same God through the power of the spirit now testifies to Christ and when you believe that spirit enters into your life and you now have communion with God. So listen now don't miss this on your hardest day on your worst day remember this God moved first. God came for you. You did not merit it. You did not earn it. You did not leverage it. You could not afford it. Yet God in his love moved first. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So yeah, we have hard days. Yeah, we have moments where we wonder what God's up to and where is he at and is he listening? But brothers and sisters, on all of those days, take your eyes back to Calvary and be reminded God moved first. Now he's called his witnesses. Now he will give his closing argument. Look with me at the second part of the passage and let's see his closing argument. We've heard from the witnesses. We've seen what he has to say. And now he will give us his closing argument. And in this closing argument, he will say, if you believe this, there are three promises given to you. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is life in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I would propose to you that John is kind of saying now, what do you say? What about you? You've heard the arguments of the witness of the blood and the, and the baptism and the spirit. You've, you've heard the story of Jesus being God in the flesh. And now you sitting in the jury box, he's asking you, what say you? What's your thoughts on this? Where have you come in this decision of understanding Jesus as the Savior? And he would simply say, those who come to Jesus are given three beautiful promises. Here's his argument for believing in all that he said. Promise number one, we are given the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in God, in the Son of God, has this testimony, notice what he says, in himself. Now that's a pretty odd phrase. He has the testimony in himself. To, to have a testimony means you know something and you say it, you give witness to it. But he's, he's talking now about belief and unbelief. And he says, if you have this testimony, if you believe this story of Jesus, then the very testimony of Jesus is now inside of you. And he's simply saying these words. The crucifixion and the death of Jesus was 2,000 years ago. But if you come to confess it and believe it, if you come to receive it, then you now have what happened 2,000 years ago inside of you. The atonement is for you. The spirit is in you. Your sins are forgiven today. And God himself dwells inside of you. So the testimony of the cross back then is made a reality now in our hearts. We have this testimony in us. Now, what is he saying? Let us be more practical. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that takes the blood of Jesus Christ and applies it to our sinful soul. The Holy Spirit, as Ezekiel 36 would say, takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats for Him. The Holy Spirit that seals us and holds us until the day of His coming. He's talking about a supernatural work that happens in our life that we could not do, we could not earn, we could not merit. But God Himself sent this testimony to be implanted in our heart and change us from the inside out. It is God doing this magically wonderful thing in us. It is God transforming us and rescuing us and conforming us. It is God doing this unseen work in our heart. He said, you have the spirit now living inside of you. You have the very testimony. The external testimony of the cross becomes internal in our hearts. What a beautiful promise from God. Promise number two in his closing argument. Not only are we promised the spirit of God, we are promised eternal life. Look at verse 11. If you believe this witness, if you believe, if you, if you rule in the favor of John, as we will, to play on words, look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. When we accept the life of Jesus, when we accept the testimony of Jesus, we are given eternal life. Uh, 1 John 3, over in chapter 3, would we say we'll pass from death to life. Listen now, coming to believe in Jesus is not just mental assent or an understanding of the facts. This is not just a court case where you make a decision and walk away. This is life and death. This is lethal if you choose wrong. This is eternal hanging in the balance. To believe in the testimony of Jesus is to have eternal life. It is to say to the grave, you have no hold on me. It is to declare from the mountaintops, we have a mansion just over the hilltop. It is to say, I know there is a place for me. And if he goes, he's coming again so that I may be where he is also. It is to say as the old song says, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. He is reminding us that when we believe the testimony of Jesus, we are given eternal life. But I want to show you something. One more thing. Look here at the promise. Look at verse 12. Or verse 11, excuse me. Or no, verse 12, I'm sorry. Whoever has the son... Has life. I want to show you a third promise, and that's simply this. Not only are we given the Spirit of God when we believe the testimony, not only are we given eternal life, that death will have no claim on us, but listen now, I want you to not miss this. We'll be given Jesus Himself. We talk a lot about heaven, most of it is speculation. There are some wonderful passages in the Bible that describe to us what it will be like, but we understand that our finite mind cannot comprehend the place where God dwells fully. Like, There's no way. We know a little bit about it. We know that, that all of the pretty jewelry on your wrists and arms will just be splatter on the wall and the streets are gold. We know the, the food and the feast and the gathering. We, we know a little bit about it, but usually what happens when we talk about heaven is we think about it as an extension of this life forever. All minus the bumps and bruises and the back pains and And you know my argument here, no more blue cross and blue shield to have to deal with, right? We understand, but oftentimes we think of heaven as just this eternal extension of all the good things in this life. So if you enjoy fishing, your view of heaven is I'm going to fish all day. If you enjoy golf, your view of golf is you're going to golf all day. If you're in heaven, do you think you'll make hole-in-ones on every hole? Those are things that I want to ask when I get there, right? You think of heaven, oh, grandma loved to cook, she's in God's kitchen now. Papa loved a garden. He's in God's garden. Now listen to me. I understand that there's some joy in thinking of that. And certainly when we read Genesis 1 and 2 where God created the garden, there was work before sin. There was communion before sin. There was fruit bearing before sin. All of those things are possible in the kingdom to come. But don't miss this. Heaven is not about fishing forever forever. Or golf on a beautiful day. It's not about baking cookies in grandma's kitchen. Heaven is about being face to face with the Savior. Amen. Amen. Heaven is about seeing Jesus. Jesus. The sweetest name I know. Heaven is about, it's about seeing the Savior who died for us. And, and notice what he says in verse 12. If you have the Son... You have life. He doesn't say you will have life. He says you have life. Even now Jesus is with me. Even now my eternity has started. At nine years old, when Christ grabbed my heart and saved me, my eternal clock kicked off and I'm with Jesus forever. And oh, I see in part and I see in shadow, but one day I will see him face to face. Brothers and sisters, To hear the testimony of John of the blood and the water and the cross is to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and lay down your life in front of Him and be reminded that you have the Holy Spirit, you've been promised eternal life, and you have Jesus. Jesus forevermore. When I think about this text, I think to myself, I'm preaching to a lot of people who would say, Pastor, we already knew all that before we started today. We already knew Jesus is the Savior. We already knew He's God in the flesh. We already knew that heaven is awaiting for us. Pastor, you didn't—you didn't really tell us. And you spent all week studying and told us the same answers we learned in Bible school in fifth grade. Well, let me tell you two things about that, and I'll close. One, we need to hear it over and over and over and over again because we are stiff-necked people. But two, I believe there is good application from the text for us. Those of you that might be in the room, the first application is simply this: Do you know Jesus? Have you come to Christ? The Bible says in verse 12 that if you have the son, you have life. But look at verse 12. See the second part of the verse. Let's hear the warning of the text. He says, uh, verse 12, whoever has the son of life, whoever does not have the son of life, does not have life. Brothers and sisters, you can protest that you are a good person. You can argue that you know God. You can argue that you're religious. But listen to me now. If you do not come to Jesus Christ believing John's testimony, then you don't have life and death awaits you. God is not a part of you. You are not a part of him. You are outside the kingdom of God. And so he simply says, you must have life. In 1970, the famed uh, atheist, (laughs) Bertrand Russell, passed away. He wrote over 100 books in his life. One of his most famous books was Why I'm Not a Christian published in the early uh, part of his life. He won a Nobel Prize for literature because of all the books he wrote in atheist worldview. He was asked one time if he died and actually realized there was a God and stood before him, he would say, he was asked, what would you say? And he said, oh, that's easy. I would look at God and say, sir, why didn't you give me more evidence? Brothers and sisters, it's not more evidence that we need. It is repentance from our broken, sinful hearts that we would seek God for all his glory. You don't need any more evidence. Jesus is the Savior. You must come to Christ. Let me give you a second application and we'll close. And that's simply this evangelism. Evangelism is in the text. Notice what he says in verse 12. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Paul would remind us in Romans chapter 10, he would simply say this How will they know if they have not heard? And how will they hear if one is not sent? Brothers and sisters, there are millions of people walking around this world, billions around the world, millions around our own home, from our neighborhoods to the nations, that if they don't know Jesus, they do not have life. In just a few days, you're going to head to your family for Thanksgiving. Do you think everybody around that table knows Jesus? In just a few days, you're going to see your co workers and take a break from the holidays. What if you don't see them again after the holidays? Do you think they know Jesus? Have you told them of the only name that will save them? The only name given among men, that which you can be saved, is Jesus? He reminds us in the text. Jesus is the only way, and evangelism is our passion. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you so much for John's clear, wonderful argument of believing in Jesus. Lord, we don't just believe a story. We believe in a person. We echo the words of Paul by declaring we know whom we believe in. Not what, but whom. We believe in Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. The rescuer of sinners. And He has come. And the message is true. And it is trustworthy. Father, I pray. That by the power of the Spirit, you would do that unseen work in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. And just a moment, we always try to allow you an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. For the last few moments, you've heard the Word of God expounded and explained to you. And now we pray that the Spirit would take the the memory and the parts and the things that you need and, and they would apply them to your heart. They would transform your mind. And I want to invite you in this invitation, this time of response, I want to invite you in two specific ways. The first one is simply this Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen now and hear the words of verse 12 again. Those who have the Son have life, those who don't do not have life. Do you have the Lord Jesus? Do you believe He's the Savior? Today can be the day where you declare it, where you can say it, where you can pray. I quoted to you earlier Romans 10. If you go just a little bit further down or a little bit before in verse 13, he says, For whosoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Oh, I pray that you would give your life to Christ. You would say, I'm turning to Jesus. I want eternal life. I want the spirit of God. I want to know I'm with Jesus. Would you hear the testimony of John and believe? A decision is demanded. And secondly, I speak to those of you in the room that are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I ask you this question. If we truly believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, who have we told? Who have we declared it to? Which neighbor and coworker and family member will we stop and say, Listen, without Jesus, there is no life. Oh, that we would love people enough to tell them of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. This altar is open. These stairs are here for you to come and concentrate, consecrate and pray to the Lord. Maybe you want to come take me by the hand say, Pastor, pray with me. Maybe you want to pray for someone you know needs to hear the story of Jesus. Whatever the case may be, I, I pray you'll respond to the Lord's word. Lord, lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing this morning?